break your patterns, yeah. Misty. <laughs> Anyways, yes. Hi, everyone. It's Misty with the 52 Portrait Project. Today, I am talking to Cage Garrison. You may know her as Cage Michelle. It's going to be a little bit different today. Usually, I have a little intro written out, but I'm going to let Cage this time introduce herself. Because, you know, you're kind of in a transitional spot a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah what do you, just like a little piece about what you do in the world. Well, community-wise, I mean, I've been doing uh, First Fridays. I think that's how most people know me in, this, in the community. So I've been doing that for like the last five years. And I've been organizing art before that. I moved back to Michigan in 2010. So I've been organizing since then. I think a lot of it is just based around like networking and doing art stuff but as of last month I stepped down from being the president for first Fridays and so now I'm just like I don't know more focused on professional development and like personal goals um, not that I wasn't doing that before but it kind of like sucked your life up the community it was, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just so many layers to, like, why I was doing the work I was doing and how I was doing it and how I feel about it. And, and so it's kind of hard. Like, your questions were so hard for me to answer because I knew I was going to be stepping down from First Fridays when I was writing them like, a couple months ago. And then, yeah, so it's just... And a, that kind of defined you, maybe, and now you're kind of figuring out who... Who am I without that? Yeah. What do I do in the world? What's my value? <laughs> yeah, there's just so many questions where people are like, oh, why are you leaving? And what are you doing now? And I'm just like, well, I, the time has come. And I, I don't know what I'm doing yet. People struggle hearing that, I think. I did the same thing when I left the bar. I was bartending yeah. for over 10 years. And I, I was just kind of walking by the river. Because, you know, I was thinking about leaving for five years before I had the guts to do it. And I, oh, I left. Didn't know that. There were a lot of wonderful things about it, but it was time. It was kind of sucking my soul dry, you know. And I just had this moment of clarity that it was okay to leave, and I just started crying. And I called Eli, and I was like, I'm going to quit today. And he was like, what are you going to do next? And I was like, I don't know. And I didn't have any money, and I just knew that I had to quit, and I had peace around it. I was okay living in my car if I had to. That's where I was. Whatever's next. And that's like a powerful place to be. It's a gift, I think, mm -hmm. to know it's just time to leave something. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful moment. I think for me, leaving First Fridays, there is a lot. It's different because it was a program that I created. Mm -hmm. So leaving that... It took like a two and a half year process to walk away. Cause I, but I was also presently building it too mm. while preparing to step down. Because I, I wanted to have something that lasted beyond me um, because I believed in what it was and I saw that the community had like taken it on. And so I wanted to continue the work that I needed to get done for it to get to that point where I could hand it off and... I finally got to that point and I was like, okay, hopefully this will stay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and the right players are in place to do a good amount of work together. I mean, but, you know, that's hard. Can you explain a little what First Fridays is in case people <clears throat> listening don't know? It started out as just a little art walk bouncing around. When it was uh, 2013 when we started doing it, and there was like four or six venues like cafes and restaurants that were doing pop-up art shows or music performances. And um, we are doing that on a monthly basis. And then uh, we started to grow it into more of like a platform for 
community to come in and plug in and share their programming. And so the local high school and Ypsilanti community schools are able to show their students' work. And there was other things too, but I mean, like getting comedy and theater in there and being able to show off open vacant spaces in mm-hmm. downtown, like the the business spaces are open. So really it was just about like mobilizing people to come into the city and engage with other folks in the community using art and culture by displaying it, getting people to come out and support it and get support for their their talent that they had. So where did that idea come from for you? That's not some like not many people are sitting around trying to figure out how to do something like that for their community. It's really incredible. So how was that born inside of you? The thought. So first Fridays has been around. I mean, there's different cities that do it. It's usually like more of like a gallery walk or a museum walk or something like that in other cities, just to have like an ongoing calendar point of this is when this happens, and they rotate their art around or their shows. But um, when I lived in San Jose, that's it's a really big deal in San Jose. Like first Fridays in San Jose, California, that is what you talk about. Mm. Like what are you doing? So you were inspired by a place that you lived. Oh yeah, that's wonderful. I, I was running an art collective out there, and we worked really closely with the gallery that puts on First Fridays. And I used to live in the district that First Fridays happened in, which was like the hip downtown part. Mm. Community Rebirth was a collective I was doing out there. And I brought the name and the idea home. Which was briefly? Basically, it was like me managing, plugging in live painting into different events and venues. I was also doing like displayed work too. So, So I'd find the artists... I'd take a commission off of any of the works that got sold, but I was like promoting their work and working with the venues mm-hmm. and but getting people getting painters to come out to doing festivals and doing other like musical shows, trying to like, get more incorporation into seeing the process of the craft in the day and age where we are now where it's just like seeing people's art being stolen online yeah so easy, and I feel like it's because of a huge part of it's from a huge disconnect from. How is that being made? Mm -hmm. What's the process? So getting talented live painters to come out, people get blown away. And it's also just another way to get the energy moving in the room, Mm -hmm. going from the musician to the live painter and back. It is incredible. I've actually been privileged enough to experience live painting while I'm playing a show. It really is special. It it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a moment in time. And people in that space, when they feel connected to the music and to the art, that's when they're able to really show their appreciation mm-hmm. in, in the form of money and purchasing, right? You know, or following that artist and you know continuing on and having a fan base for a visual art. It's important. Mm-hmm. And you have to educate yourself pretty heavily <laughs> to get um, it where it is today because it's really popular today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. What did I do? Well, so I when I was living in California, I moved out there to do AmeriCorps. I did two years of service out there, and those years of service. Every Friday was a leadership development day. If I was working with school-aged children, then the development would be around like behavioral issues in class or something, or you know how to empower responsibility and mm. young people, or how to do service projects with a group of high school students. Or it was so vast; it was so much information, and a lot of it was like, you know, like how do you come into a community and offer to do a service project, mm-hmm. and how do you do that without doing it wrong? What does yeah. it mean to do it wrong? You know, and getting behind the theories behind it. You know, I mean, there's just so many books out there. There's so many great quotes out there on service and how to do it and how to do it better. And 
how to have inclusion and diversity with the cohort of people that you're doing it and like where you're coming from. So you have a huge background coming into this thing. Yeah. I mean, that was like in 2005, 2006, 2007. Those are the years that I was in AmeriCorps and going through these trainings and practicing it. And then I just never stopped practicing. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to First Fridays, I had some pretty big failures under my belt on like community organizing and so important though oh, isn't it? oh yeah they're yeah. super valuable yeah. like i've yeah i've gone and done like presentations on my failures people were like oh you're a good leader will you come speak about it and i'm like sure i'll speak about my failures yeah <laughs> like that's that's the me so that's wonderful that you're willing to share that too um i do think it's really interesting mm-hmm. with the background that you have so you clearly are a strong people connector and you're used to being in a leadership role, yet I send you these eight questions and it makes you anxious. I'm so interested in that. So what do you think that is? Yeah, these questions are so hard. Well, I think for me, it was triggering. What is the perception of like how I should be answering these questions and where do I think I should be at with answering these questions? Mm. And there's just so many different ways to answer the questions. Mm-hmm. And I was like thinking about it too much. Like your first question. Is there a ritual that you do? And I was thinking about these questions when I was in Alaska. I was in Alaska farming last summer for two months. And on the farm, when I was out in the field working, we'd listen to some podcasts that you've done. And so I'm thinking about the questions. And they just always changed for me. Mm. And the thing is, is I just don't, like, my rituals are just, I think for me, they just change so often. And it wasn't until like recently that I read, I think it was a Buddhist quote, and it was talking about like destroying patterns, like Mm. find your patterns and destroy them. Even the good ones? Maybe just even just do it just to do it. Because it's just like getting stuck in pattern. But if you think about it, I mean, you can take that a lot of different ways. But, you know, when people are so rigid about change, Mm -hmm. you know, and like you look at civil unrest or the civil rights movement, and how people were told to just wait. Change will come. And there was just, there was no way to actually support that, you know? And it's just like, because why? You know, these patterns of what we've had, they need to stay. And, I mean, so those are some pretty big patterns, but in my head, this is where I was going. I was like, oh, I don't know what my rituals are. (laughs) It's kind of like maybe if you answer the question, you're cementing yourself into something that might not be true by the time we talk or something. Was it something like that? (laughs) That's one way to really, yes, yes. Yes, In a nutshell. (laughs) It's so cool, though, the idea that breaking any pattern can be good for you. Because from my personal spiritual practice, or from the teachers that I have listen to the most say Mm -hmm. the word practice means you come to the thing whether you feel like it or not and that is where your growth comes from so like breaking the pattern might just mean that I just don't feel like doing it you know what I mean and so that's this weird line Mm. like you have to decide for yourself where am I going to learn am I going to learn by coming to it every day in this ritual form whatever it is it can be working out it can be meditating it could be service it could be whatever but as soon as you hit that resistance does that mean it's time to change or does it mean you learn to deal with resistance. I don't know. You right. know, it's no. so interesting. I've never thought of it that way where breaking the pattern yeah. might serve you, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I, and I mean, and I get that, like when, when I do sit down and meditate, I mean, there is a certain ritual that I do to prepare myself 
to steady myself and get grounded so I can sit. But yeah, I mean, just throughout my day, though, being an independent contractor, like there's very little routine that Mm -hmm. I have throughout my day and throughout my week. But so there's like baseline things of how I do the self-care throughout my day. And what does that look like? And I think in different times of my year or my month, I'll pull in certain routines or certain things that I do just to take care. What are some of those, for example? Well, last fall I did a half marathon. That was the first time I ever did that, and it was like on my bucket list. And uh, But training for that. I had a routine of mm. training, you know, of like what it looked like for nutrition and like working out and how many miles I was running throughout the week. Like that is like a really like black and white kind of yeah, routine. Yeah, and then you ritual. also have an endpoint kind of, which is nice. It might help you maintain mm-hmm. the practice. Yeah. Another part of the anxiety question We've talked a little bit about how the questions themselves caused you anxiety, but there's this part in here where you say, whenever I can manage the dollars, I travel to reconnect with myself and take myself out of my current patterns and routine. I travel somewhere with a spiritual goal, reaching an ashram or receiving body work. I prefer to travel alone, which really gets me stripped of my ego when confronted with my own stereotypes and prejudices, and I get to sit with them and look at them. There's a lot to unlearn, and by immersing myself in another culture, it's been so healing for me. When I'm traveling is when I actually stick closer to a ritual of meditation, chants, and reflection. I journal almost daily when I travel and rely on being grounded in order to stay aware of my new surroundings for safety and for maximum engagement. So it's interesting mm-hmm. to me how differently we all deal with our anxiety and the fact that like we're triggered by such different things because it sounds like travel to you is a way to ground yourself, mm-hmm. whereas that might send some people over the edge. And you travel alone, which can also be really scary for people, but it seems <laughs> that's where you learn the most and are more centered that way. Yeah, I yeah. love it. So and where I, do you think that comes from, that like hunger to travel? Have you just always been that way? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I, um, I grew up Catholic and um, close with just like large Catholic families in Ann Arbor, Ipsy area, mm-hmm. and they all kind of like know each other and there was a lot of them that did the the Santiago Trail in Spain. Oh, yes. That um, is a pilgrimage. It's this very, it's like this historic religious pilgrimage that people do. Um, and so there was groups of people that did it when I was a teenager. And I wanted to do it so bad. And I was like 15 or 16. I had friends that went off and did it. At that age, even. Yeah. And they were, it was like with a group. It was like a group of people that wow. went and they did it for a month. You know, it's really meditative and you're walking through these areas and people are receiving you and you're finding places mm. to stay and food and, and people are respecting the work that you're doing. You know, and it's the spiritual work of being on this pilgrimage. And I've just always been fascinated about that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, just as far as like this idea of traveling and engaging and completely different culture like I, I didn't know any Spanish you know when I was a teenager and so yeah. did you go I've never I've you haven't <laughs> I haven't gone yet it's on my list but I love that I just I'm not drawn to Europe right now I feel like there's there's other areas in the world where I'm being called to mm-hmm. so that's where I've been traveling yeah tell me a little bit about your travels that's partly why you popped up in my head for this project is because you seem to be a seeker and you want to, you know, whatever that means to you, I don't know. But to me, it means that you're, you're constantly trying to go deeper with your life. Mm -hmm. And so I know that you went to India, Africa recently. Yeah. 
So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I have three older brothers, and my oldest brother did Peace Corps in Zambia, which is just south of the Congo next to Zimbabwe. And he he called me up one day when I um, hadn't talked to him in like a year. You know, he's in a hut in Africa, oh you know, gosh. like like you do. <laughs> Not a lot of reception out there. So uh, I got a phone call from him and I'm just like, oh holy crap, you know. And he asked me to fly out there to meet his girlfriend. Is this Zambian woman that he had met and that they're together and he wanted to propose to her. But he wanted somebody from the family to come meet her before he proposed, you know, to, I don't know, kind of have like this like, you know, social approval of, you know. Connection. I, yeah. yeah. I see you and let me meet this person that's important to you and let me meet her family. And yeah, it, it was really interesting. So that was the first time that I went to Africa and that was, I think it was in 2015. And so I figured it out with my schedule and with my contractor jobs, and I took the time off. So I spent two weeks with my brother traveling around Zambia and meeting his girlfriend. And then I went to India for five weeks. <laughs> like at the same trip? Yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I'm already out here. That's you know, incredible. Like, That's I'm, a huge life changer, it seems like, to be gone that long and in <laughs> such foreign places. Like, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't prepared for Zambia. It's so different. Yeah. And um, yeah. can you explain how? Well, I mean, there's just not there's not many white people ever in Zambia. Like the like ever like whenever we were walking around, it was always my brother and I that were the white people anywhere. <laughs> so I mean, that was that was something. I, um, but Zambian culture is is something beautiful. I love it, and uh, I fell in love with it. And I could see how he. He fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. Like, he genuinely took on the cultural exchange mm -hmm. and really learned the culture and really honors ceremony and, and history. And Did I think he stay there? He now lives in Denver with his wife. They got married within a year of me going out there. So And she came to the States. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so Talk about culture shift. <laughs> very you know? different. Very different. Oh, my gosh. But yeah, when I went to India, I um I just bought a ticket, a one-way ticket to India. I didn't know when I was going to return or if I was going to return. I didn't know if it was going to be one of those like quarter-life crises where I just <laughs> tell people to close my accounts and send me money and that was it. And I was just going to So that was a big trip for me and it ended up being 5 weeks and I was able to have a job still when I got home. What did you experience there? A lot. The first thing I did, I have Arbor Brewing Company is actually in... I know. I forget, but I know. That's, <laughs> it's so crazy. They're in Bangalore. And um, my friends are the ones that um, started the brewery. So a little connection out there. Yeah. Very so nice. um, Logan and Hollis, they were the ones that actually opened that brewery. That's usually the main poll on like, which country am I traveling yeah. to is who's willing to give me a couch and for how long. <laughs> Is there food attached? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. just all those little things. That, and, and, and being able to navigate the culture, though. So Hollis was really helpful in, in teaching me about how to understand how to navigate, like, literally, like, getting on to the bus station and mm -hmm. buying a bus ticket and, and what you need to do and what the culture is to buying a ticket. Uh, like, 
you mentioned before, we were talking that that claustrophobia is a thing. Mm -hmm. And in Indian culture, like standing in line, it's not really a line. It's more of like a pile of people that are just pushing forward. forward, And it's whoever yells the loudest at the teller. That's how you get stuff. And it's not, you know, that's not rude. That's not rude. It's just the way the communication is there. Um, And so being able to navigate stuff like that culturally and being able to understand like what is baseline here and okay, I need to prepare myself to be flexible or to adapt to this. Like it was, you know, and then he's just like, okay, have fun, (laughs) you know? And so then I would go and travel around for a few days or a few weeks and I'd come back and tell him a little bit and then continue on. But I went to an ashram in uh, Kerala for a couple of weeks when I first got to India, and that was that's where I spent a lot of time meditating and chanting. Yeah. How do you think it changed you? It taught me about a new experience and a new life that, you know, at this ashram, it's Amma's ashram mm-hmm. in, um, mm-hmm. in Kerala, in her homeland, in her home, like, town. And I don't know, it's a completely different world. And, you know, when I put myself in situations like that, I fantasize about staying longer and how long forever yeah you know like what if there was like more of an ellipses at this moment in time in my life than what I had put in my calendar you know and so I play around with that and I feel like when I really celebrate that ellipses is when I really find like something more than what I was prepared to or what I expected you know, like when I initially went to the ashram, I only booked like two or three days mm. and I kept extending by two or three days. And then it ended up being like almost two and a half weeks. So it was like around New Year's and Christmas. And, and I was like, well, I guess I'll stay for Christmas. And then I was like, well, I guess I'll stay for New Year's. And I'm like, well, I don't know when to leave, you know? <laughs> yeah. I just didn't have a reason to leave. And I just kept... Was your heart kind of telling you to stay? Yeah. Like there, there was something more. Yeah. It was just more... There was more stillness for me to engage mm. with. And for me, being back home, like, I I don't do this as much now, but at that time in my life, in 2015, like, my schedule was so fast and so crazy. Um, I was constantly dealing with so many different projects and managing so many different things. And it was just buzzing, constant buzzing. So being in somewhere that was still... Um, that gave me a lot and it but it also was really challenging because I didn't I didn't know how to turn it off you Mm. know but being in India it really helped because I had no phone I didn't really have that like I can't even remember it's amazing I love going to places where I don't have cell phone where internet is really it is a half hour walk away and you may only get it four days out of the mm-hmm. week or something, you know, like it's, <laughs> and it comes at a cost. Like you have to pay X amount of rupees to get it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you only get it for 20 minutes. <laughs> it really puts it in priority. Yeah. I knew that I needed to stay longer. Was there a risk that you're taking by staying longer? Or maybe you won't have a job when you come back. Did you have any of that pressure on you when you're making this decision to keep extending? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's why I find it, that's, <laughs> What I assumed, and it makes it even more powerful that you did it anyway. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think, uh, well, that was before I I had my bachelor's degree, so I didn't have any debt. Um, (laughs) I miss... Also don't know what that's like. (laughs) 
anymore. I, yeah, I miss not having debt. Yeah. There's something about that time period. Because I, I think it was also like because I knew that going back to school and finishing my degree was going to happen soon and that I needed to take these longer trips when I could, you know, mm. and, and just I knew that I had the wiggle room. It was just a matter of just really committing to it and knowing that the universe was going to provide for it, you know, that mm-hmm. I just needed to listen to myself and try to make those dollars. Have you found that throughout your life you've been able to listen to that voice and like trust it? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think, yeah, when I first got into independent contracting, that's when it really hit. That was when it was really hard. When I I was leaving the Ugly Mug Cafe to be a massage therapist, and I was allowing that to be a client-based income, you know? And so that was a, a huge thing. And I was like, I was also in a 12-step program at the time, too. So I was able to really process it about step three, where you're just, like, constantly letting go of expectation and control of what needs to happen, Mm. you know, and just, like, letting things happen and trusting that you're going to be taken care of. So, like, that sense of surrender in that context was really important when I was making that transition. Mm -hmm. And it was just that practice. Like, that was some serious practicing. Like, when I hear people now talk about paycheck to paycheck, I it's been so long since I have had a paycheck <laughs> where I'm like, I don't remember what that's like, but I'm client to client. If I have too many clients cancel, I'm like, oh, <laughs> crap. Yeah. Yeah, it's a roller coaster ride, the but freelancing, contracting. It is. Yeah, if you're going to learn trust, that's like, it's where I'm at right now, too. Trust Just in like, the higher power. Well, I, you know, the money's literally almost gone but i just trust somehow coming around the bend you know and it always does seem to work out i mean i mm-hmm. would but it's awesome to have that to have cultivated that trust in whatever way it came for me it was also a 12-step program the surrender and also the bhagavad gita mm-hmm. that line stuck with me where it says do your duty and let go of the fruits of your actions. Oh, it's yeah. It's just like, let go of the fruit. Let go of the fruit. Just do your job. Just go do your job. Even if you don't know if you're going to get paid for it. Do your work in the world. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great mantra. Yeah. I mean, it's... Do your duty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's like pretty much like baseline of why I do service and why service has been so important in my life. It's like, it's not about the product that it was bringing, but we're creating but more so just like of why the work was important mm-hmm. you know the process being in process and doing that work yeah i spoke with a woman for this project satori shakur who does the secret society of twisted storytellers in detroit and she was driving home this point of having a mission and how important that is when things are when things get cloudy and you're not sure what to do next, if you have a mission, you can always check in with the mission mm-hmm. to find out what the next step is. Because, like, what's the next right thing? And does it align with the mission that I started this thing for? That's what started to make me try to define what my mission is in my life. And actually, you talk in your questions about how your work is not so much the work you get paid for. It's your spiritual work and working on yourself. Mm-hmm. That's so true for me. I always forget. Like, people will ask me what I'm doing. What are you doing these days? And I can't answer the question. I'm like, what am I doing? (laughs) What am I doing? You know? And then I remember, like, oh, I spend a lot of time meditating Mm -hmm. and reading Mm -hmm. and engaging with teachers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am in a 12-step program, and I do a lot for that. And none of that is paid for. None. I mean, I'm not getting paid for any of that. But it's 
right. a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not what people want to hear. I mean, yeah, I think you know? it's all about context, you know? Yes. So I have a hard time when I hear that question because then I'm like rattling my head of like, okay, what context is appropriate to yeah. answer? <laughs> yeah, who am I talking to? Yes. You know? But should that matter? Like more and more in my life, I'm just... I am who I am, and mm-hmm. guess you're going to get this answer today, you know? But I find that takes the stress off of me. I, I mean, I'm into that, but I also feel like that we should just abolish that question. <laughs> what are you doing? Like, what have you been up to lately? Oh, my gosh. I'm breathing. Oh. Seeking joy and yes. breathing and, and trying to be a better person. Yes. You know? Oh, you say that, the joy part, too. I wanted to get to that. Let me find it. It's the abundance question, which a lot of people hate, but you didn't. (laughs) The question is, what does abundance look like in your life? And you say, my joy, with an exclamation point. Um, Not until a couple years ago, I did a meditation retreat with a shaman I follow, and I sat with the root of my anger and fear and came out of that retreat changed and feeling more love and forgiveness than ever. Since then, my heart swells with gentle joy, and I do the work to maintain balance. Abundance in my life looks like me pausing and honoring where I've come from and what I have today. Societal context sometimes throws me off with the internal battle of what I am doing with my time and what I should have already accomplished. So I pause and take inventory on the abundance of quality in my life and honor it. My home and my partner are a blessing. The food we share and the community who surrounds us is all so beautiful and important to me. I love that so much. Yeah, me too. (laughs) So how do you define, this is a hard question, but how do you define joy? Is it different than happiness? I mean, like happiness, I feel like it is is like the status quo, like that pressured thing that we're supposed to seek and find. But joy is that that still, that peacefulness. That's where my joy is, is when like I'm not questioning my worth and I'm not questioning my time and that sense of peace, like that, that's joyful for me. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where I know that I'm safe and, you know, that I'm alive. Mm-hmm. Like, and that question of what are you doing, it doesn't, it's like, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't mean anything, but it doesn't stir up that craziness either. It maybe. doesn't, yeah, it doesn't bring it out. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't equate to it, you know, because it, it, it makes me feel like what I'm doing and what I'm not doing is really important. Mm-hmm. And I am deconstructing that daily that what I'm doing and what I'm not doing is actually not important (laughs) it's how I feel about what I'm doing and how like do does this make me feel alive does this bring me joy you know and and then whatever the actions are that follow or whatever the actions are that follow and checking in is so important Mm -hmm. and asking and honoring it's like that practice of gratitude Mm -hmm. I hear a few people have said that on the podcast too that they're practice is gratitude, mm-hmm. you know, checking in and what am I grateful for right now? Mm-hmm. From the like, the sun came out today to I had enough food to eat to my community supports me or whatever it might be. All right, I noticed the birds today or whatever it is. But that's joy for me. Yeah, I think I think, you know, the gratitude practicing, I think that by nature is honoring joy. Mm. You know, and it's honoring the joy that you have is by by doing those things. And I, and I think that's super important work to do, you know, and it's, yeah. that's that spiritual work. It's, it's so important. And I just read recently too, that not only is it spiritual work, but it is actually changing pathways in your brain, the neural pathways. I mean, that, that dictates how you feel in the world and how you are in the world. So yeah, I used to, I used to mentor some women 
few years ago, and I I would bring that up. Where well, not not the scientific part that you're saying, but mm-hmm. when you're in a mindset of judgment, it's impossible to feel grateful. It's impossible to be in a mindset mm-hmm. of gratitude as well. So you're it's really binary. You're either in one or the other. You know, it's either you are in that like restless judgment, throwing expectations out there and and having resentment about it, or you're in a place of gratitude. And I've even tried to like prove that wrong, you know, like, oh no, I can do both. And it's just like, you can't. <laughs> yeah. That's it's like one so or the other. So the fact that there's like a scientific <clears throat> neural pathway thing going on with it totally makes sense to me Yeah, because you really are, because that's really a commitment to like seeing the world in a certain way. Yeah. It's like you're, either, it's like that really simple split of love and fear. Mm-hmm. You're either going down, you know, you're either in the path of love or you're the path of fear. You cannot have the two at the same time. Mm-hmm. And of course, we all want to be on the path of love. What the heck keeps us from that? Not everybody. Yeah, that, you know, that's true. There's there's power and control and fear. Yeah, I mean, there's we don't need to get into we see it, a lot but. of that these days, <laughs> don't we? There are, yeah, you know, tools and weapons. You know, yeah. I don't see love being used as a weapon, really. I think it's more of like fear being masked. Yep. You know, I'm gonna end with the with the last question. Is there something about yourself you'd like to share that you think may help encourage or inspire others? And you say, this has been such a process to get here today. I have to keep people near me who call me out for being short-sighted or having a sharp tongue. I know when I find joy in my day, it is easier for me to be gentle with myself and those in pain around me. But there's work to maintain the stamina needed to handle it all. No one knows best how I need to condition myself to handle this world. I know when I'm doing something that doesn't work or isn't in line with my spirit and grace and gentleness from within allows me to make necessary adjustments. So you found people who keep you in check. Mm -hmm. Community is so important in that way. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned also somewhere in here that you just recently found a community that you feel that you fit with. What is it about the people that you have found? What's the difference now? Are you different? Yeah, does that work for you? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, is it because they called you out? You know? Do you yeah, know? you know. I think it's. I think it's more of like being open and being present in that like vulnerable state with a community of people. Like doing it one on one with close friends is something that I've like maintained over the years. But having like a close group of friends hasn't been a thing in my life. It's always been like me being a part of different groups and then having like a strong connection with like at least one of the people in that group. And I don't know if that's just, I don't know why that is and why that's been, but yeah, this recent group of friends, like through doing Ipsy pride and, and helping to organize with queer events, like being able to connect with a group of people has been a a game changer for me. And I think part of me is just like more willing to, I mean, I don't know, it gets into, like, the experience of a queer woman and, like, coming into my experience and and really claiming that identity. And I didn't feel like I really belonged in the queer groups that I Mm. had come across until now, you know? And Mm so that had to deal with it. And and the group that I'm in, like, there's – it's intersectional. Like, there's people across the board in the LGBT community that are in this group, and it's just – you know, we're a group of misfits mm-hmm. in a sense, but we're, you know, we're honest and we're caring and we, we're, we're challenging each other too. 
you know, coming from our own experiences and our own biases. And, and it's just great to be able to be in a place with like a group of people that are willing to say, Hey, you know what, that's actually insensitive or you're hurting my feelings, Mm. you know, things like that. And and they're hard conversations, but I'm seeing it happen in this group of people and it's so loving, you know, it's not always fun, but it's important. And it's, it's a growing pains of being in a, in a group. Well, I'm glad you found that. That's amazing. Yeah. It really is. Not everybody gets there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks. sharing yourself with yeah. me and my project and all the people who listen. I mean, your story is so vast. We just kind of <laughs> bounced around and touched the top of a lot of things. But if people want to learn more, is there a place they can find you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. Cage Michelle. K-A-Y-J Michelle. Yeah, and I, I just recently was talking to my partner actually this morning about being more intentional about utilizing our platforms mm. and, like, I don't know, just having more intentional messaging and, like, what would that look like? So I might be sharing more on there because I haven't been active lately because it just didn't feel right mm-hmm. to connect about empty posts about my lunch or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't speak to me, but I think I might I might share and reflect and process a little bit more publicly yeah on there all right thank so you, you so much misty on instagram <laughs> thank you cage bye everyone bye